0: Amen. I'll share with you one more insight about that with regards to just reading the scriptures together or praying more liturgical prayers. For those of you who pray in other tongues or pray in the Spirit, you know when you do that, you pray from the depths of your spirit. You really you really pray with all your heart. And it's possible to do that with things like this too. And, and I've discovered that when I engage on that level, it makes all the difference. Even when sometimes I don't know all the Hebrew words. So we'll, uh, we'll just continue to, to learn about that as we go. So, as I said, I, I uh, eliminated the Lama talk today because there were quite a few big themes in this Parsha. Exciting ones. And things that I feel are very relevant to our future also. I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I love reading history. I get excited about the past. But when I think about the future, I get even more excited. That's what really gets me going. And there's a principle in the scriptures that he declares the end from the beginning. I.e., he declares the end revelation from Genesis and Exodus. So, if we want to understand our future, it's important to understand our past as the covenant people of Elohim. Um, I'm let's start in uh, Matthew. Uh, sorry, in the book of Mark, chapter three, and I'll share a couple things with you there. Also, uh, I have quite a few things I want to cover today. So, you know, we're going to go at a decent rate here. If you have questions or comments that pop up. As you should, if we're just having like a real conversation in the Holy Spirit, I encourage you if possible to write them down, and then we'll have stuff to discuss over own egg. I really want to get in that groove of just taking our study and just moving it to the table and continuing it over, over a meal. I feel like that is such a rich, rich expression of fellowship. So, uh, let's try and do it. Sorry, pardon? Oh, Mark chapter 3. And we'll look at, uh, we'll look at several things in there. One of the things that really excites me is the original call. Uh, you've probably noticed by now that I'm really passionate about discipleship. That's probably what gets me going more than anything. I just see it all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's the original call of Yeshua to come and be disciples, the best disciples that we can be, and then to go on to reproduce ourselves as disciples. And we read about it here, him calling his original disciples in, in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, it says he went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. Does Yeshua still do that today? Does he want people? Does he beckon to them to come? I believe he does. And they came to him. And he pointed 12 so that they would not spend much time with him and so he could send them out to Molon's. No, that's not what it says, is it? It says he he uh, appointed them so that they would be with him. And then he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out the demons. I see a sequence here that I think often we overlook today. Often when we have younger people who are zealous for God, we try and get them out there doing the works of the kingdom right away. Maybe we'll put them through a couple years of Bible school and seminary first and then we'll get them out there. But... I noticed a very critical principle here about discipleship. Before the master can send somebody out to proclaim the word in power, to impact society, i.e. casting out demons, he first calls them to be with him. And that kind of sounds like almost a passive word, like being with him, but it's it's a very active word, of course. It means to spend years like actively engaging with him, investing a lot of time in our relationship with him spending a lot of time pouring over the Word, sitting at His feet, absorbing His teachings, letting His Spirit wash over you, becoming like Him. That's the idea behind being with Him. And as we see from a couple of comments later in this chapter, when you get a bunch of guys together, living in close quarters for several years, it gets interesting on another level also. So that that is the call to to you, to come, to, to be with Him. And there will be a point when he sends you out, when he empowers you, when he, even for us as a group, where he empowers us to impact society. I'm excited about that. (laughs) So I I kind of see two phases there, and they're both so important. Did you notice that the master had nicknames for his disciples? Here you have Shimon, Simon, right? And the master meets him, and Simon has this encounter. And it's the beginning of a massive transformation process, and in the, in the process of that, he gets a new name. Yeshua calls him the Rock. Yeshua calls him Rocky. You could even say in English. <laughs> Look at the next two guys, James and John, Yaakov and Yochanan. They get the nickname Sons of Thunder. In English, we call them the Thunder Boys. Okay, so so you have to you have to envision this like you have a group of you know a little over a dozen men. They live with each other for several years straight, they travel around on the road, and uh, they have nicknames for each other. You, you only usually have nicknames in like a circle of, of men like that when you really get close. When, almost when you get too close. like You could tell these guys spend almost too much time with each other. In a good way. <laughs> Can you imagine like the three big heavy hitters in the early Messianic community? And they have names like Rocky and the Thunder Boys. <laughs> Like, here's the thing, though. That's the way Yeshua works. Like, he's so personal. And when he sees you, he doesn't see your past. He sees your future. And he sees your potential, who you're truly made to be. And he wants to give you nicknames. Maybe, I mean, like, you just imagine. What's the nickname he'd give you? Maybe you want to ask him. Maybe it'll shock you. Maybe it'll be like, that's audacious. Or like, that's... What I've always dreamed of being, but what I was always told I couldn't be. That's going to if I like if I tell anybody that that's the nickname Yeshua gave me, they're gonna look at me funny. Well, yeah, that's the idea. They look at him funny too, right? So what I see there is when we meet the Master, He wants to empower us. He wants to set us free. He wants to He wants to send us into our destinies with Him, and uh, and make it fun in the process. Make it personal. So. I, it would be kind of fun if we had nicknames for each other, too, at some point. That could get scary, too, but I'm up for that. So, so that's the question. You can take that home and ask him. What, what, what would you call me? What's your nickname for me? Um, I, I see an interesting parallel. It's actually an opposite parallel between the Parsha and the New Covenant portion. And it only jumped out at me when we were reading. So this is hot off the press. In the Parsha, we learned that God uses old guys. How old was Moses when he received his commission? 80 years old. Can you imagine? What if you waited until you were 80 before God gave you your great mission to go impact a nation? To go set a whole bunch of people free. And (laughs) Moses' brother was even older. He was 83. Now here's the interesting thing. What we learn in the Mark passage is God also uses young guys and young gals. When you think about the apostles, we often think about guys in their 30s and their 40s, and they're already well-advanced in life. They're pretty well-established when Yeshua comes through their lives, and he calls them to discipleship. But that was not actually the case. I'm going to read you an interesting quote from a traditional Jewish source called Pirkei Avot. It means, like, ethics of the fathers. They're, they're short, pithy sayings of the Jewish sages. Basically, in every generation of the Second Temple era, you had a couple of the, the great sages. And in this book, they uh, they write, down, write them down. So if you could think of a sage and summarize the most pithy things that he said in two or three sentences, that's what you'd have in Pirkei Avot. And it's actually in the traditional Jewish prayer book, the Sidur, because it gets quite a bit of coverage. So I'm going to read you something about the age of men and the different stages in their life. And this is from Yehuda ben Tema. It says, uh, Yehuda used to say, this is Jewish tradition. So this will give you an insight into the Jewish world, right, of Yeshua's time. A five-year-old begins scripture. In other words, when a child turns five, you get him reading the Bible. A ten-year-old begins Mishnah. Mishnah is like advanced scripture study. It's uh, understanding the details of Torah observance. A 13-year-old becomes obliged to observe the commandments. What do we call that usually when, you, when a Jewish male turns 13? Bar Mitzvah, that's correct. A 15-year-old begins the study of Gemara, um, which is like the Hebrew word for advanced studies even further. It would be like your Bible college slash seminary education today. That's the one I really want to key in on, but we'll, we'll come back to the 15-year-old one. An 18-year-old goes to the marriage canopy... So what was the average age for a Jewish male to get married in the Second Temple era? 18. A 20-year-old begins the pursuit of livelihood. So, in the Jewish world, you start reading the word when you're 5. Uh, at 10 years old, you begin learning uh, kind of uh, more details to it and observance, which gets you ready for your bar mitzvah at 13, when you make a personal and public commitment to obedience to the covenant. At 15 is when you would complete your scripture studies by learning under a rabbi. So, the average age for a young Jewish man to begin apprenticing himself under a Jewish rabbi was 15. He'd have about three years to study under his rabbi and then at 18 he'd get married, have a couple years with his wife, probably slightly more free time, and then at 18 he starts his per- <coughs> excuse me pursuit of livelihood. <coughs> what does that... Yeah, 20, sorry, what did I say? <clears> throat> my throat caught, and it, it came out a little different. <laughs> that was a good excuse, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm fast on my toes with those excuses. <laughs> but uh, here's the thing. How old, therefore, do you think most of Yeshua's disciples were when he called them? Okay, let's give it a couple of years. The average age was 15, but we'll say, we'll give it a couple of years. Let's say where they were 17 or 18. That means when Yeshua was resurrected and he committed the future of the kingdom to his disciples, their average age was probably under 25. These guys, on average, were in their early 20s which may explain why they had quite a few years in the early Jerusalem community before they were scattered out into the surrounding environs of Judea and Samaria, and why it was several years before that, before they actually left the land of Israel to bring the good news to the nations. When you read it, the apostles, at first glance, they looked like they were kind of slacking off. They didn't actually leave Israel and begin preaching in the nations until something like a decade at least after Yeshua committed that mission to them. Well, now you know why. These guys were young. They were still in training. And I find that encouraging, that Yeshua calls people, irregardless of their age, firstly to spend time with Him, to train, but ultimately also to a mission. Hopefully that doesn't blow your paradigms too much. (laughs) Like Moses and Aaron? Oh, they're just starting their adventure, aren't they? Yeah. It makes us for the rest of us. We come on board later. We're still getting our stuff together. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. We're still getting our stuff together. Uh, here's, here's a little uh, side note. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it says something about the Pharisees. Now, we've been discussing how on a halakhic level, in terms of interpretation and application of the Torah, Yeshua was more like a Pharisee than any other sect of Judaism at that time. He, you could even say that he was a Pharisee. Although, obviously, he had some major differences also. Um, some people have kind of made the Sadducees out to be the bad guys. They say, well, it was only the Sadducees that persecuted Yeshua. It was the Sadducees that were primarily responsible for persecuting the early believers also. And to a degree this was true. The Sadducees were more apostate. Uh, they were less serious about their observance. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. So when the early disciples were proclaiming the resurrection in Yeshua, it really set the Sadducees off. But we can't overlook the fact that in Mark chapter three verse six, it says the Pharisees also had a hand in conspiring with the Herodians, who were probably Sadducees that were conspiring with, you know, Herod's government against him. So the Pharisees aren't totally off the hook. And I don't know, maybe we don't need to hear this in this room, but I'm saying that because there's kind of this question in the messianic movement about the Pharisees. So we see that they had a hand in conspiring too. For the record. <coughs> There's a powerful principle at the end of the book of Mark about houses, uh, which means a family. In Mark chapter 3, verse 24 to 26, Yeshua gives a principle that a house divided against itself, it can't stand. In other words, if there's a family that is like set against itself through division or a massive disagreement or whatever, it's going to fall apart. It's not going to make it. And in this case, Yeshua was talking about Satan's kingdom. He was talking about how Satan can't be divided against Satan. Can he? Then his kingdom wouldn't last. And that was his proof that he wasn't by the power of Beelzebul casting out demons. But here's something interesting. Is this a principle that is also applicable on our side? Is this true of Messiah's house? Is this true of us as the family of God? That when we're divided against each other, we're not going to stand? We can't make it through the coming storms? I, I believe it is. And I believe that's something that the Holy Spirit is really emphasizing to Messiah's people around the world. And I think it's a word that we need to hear in the Messianic movement also, that we are not going to stand if we are divided against each other. And if we are divided against each other, our first order of business is to work things out. And I have a couple of practical applications in that regard that can help us. Not only is, it, is it a congregation here, because I don't think we're divided against each other. I feel a lot of love with you guys and a beautiful degree of unity. But as a broader movement, we can focus on loving each other because love covers over a multitude of wrongs, because love brings unity and drives out division. Loving each other in practical ways, especially loving each other verbally. That's the big one I think sometimes we forget about. Not only can we encourage each other and pray for each other and uh, affirm each other like, Ye- like Yeshua did with His disciples and giving them awesome nicknames and things like that, <clears throat> Excuse me. but we can also avoid the opposite of loving each other verbally. We can avoid tearing each other down. We can avoid Lashon HaRa, the evil tongue, speaking negative things about brothers and sisters. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's common knowledge that if you try and trace a church split to its roots, it almost always starts with people speaking against each other. Sometimes they speak true things that are bad about someone. Sometimes they speak false things, but they're both destructive. I have a piece of sagely advice that I grew up from my mother ringing in my ears. She said, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. So true. So true. That really helped me in my relationship with my three brothers. I'm telling you. Okay, so can you just, uh, <laughs> oh, Rashan is your tongue. Roshan. Hara means the Roshan. evil. So lashon hara is literally the evil tongue, and it's the Hebrew term for speaking badly of someone, gossip, all this other stuff. Yeah. And I'm 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 stressing this more because we're a new congregation, and we want to start out strong on the right foot. Uh, We want to lay a deep foundation in this area. So I'm not going to always be emphasizing this because I I, I really appreciate the unity we have here and the love we have for each other. Um, Here's another thing as a movement and as a congregation we can do. We can focus on the basics that bring us together. Often in Midrash... We're tempted in messianic circles to focus on trivial little questions or peripheral issues or stuff that in the long term really doesn't matter and certainly isn't practical. And for that tendency, I would say, let's focus on the basics that bring us together. It's the basics that make us strong. It's the basics that we want to major in. And let's focus on the essentials of our faith that are our common ground. We believe in Yeshua the Messiah. We are in love with him. He is our heavenly bridegroom. We can never talk talk enough about him and how wonderful he is. We can never quote his words enough. We can never recount the miracle stories often enough. We can never talk about Yeshua enough. We can never talk about the common ground we have in our stand for the people of Israel and that... All of us, whether we be from a Jewish or a non-Jewish background, are a part of that covenant people. We can never talk enough about God's Torah and how it's eternal and about how applicable it is to our lives and how Yeshua gave us that standard to, uh, to uphold and to fly high. These are, some of the, these are some of the essentials that all of us in the movement have as our common ground. And we're growing in them. This is another interesting connection. Yeshua, in Mark chapter 3, he's talking about a house divided. And when we look at the Pharaoh story, we see that there is some division going on that results in the crumble of Pharaoh's house. It all starts with Pharaoh's daughter. Even in Pharaoh's own family, he has a dissenter. Pharaoh's daughter knows full well that she should not be adopting this Hebrew boy, that she shouldn't be harboring one of the enemy. But her compassion gets the better of her. Her conscience overwhelms her, and she rescues Moshe. Pharaoh's house was divided in that case. And it signaled the downfall of his kingdom. That was a good thing. <laughs> Later we have Pharaoh's uh, his courtiers, the members of his government. Even when Pharaoh does not believe in Yahweh, where he will not acknowledge the authority of Yahweh and his prophet, Pharaoh's courtiers are like scrambling to go and get their servants out of the field because the hail is coming. They're, they have high high regard for Moses. And then eventually a large part of Pharaoh's nation... Defects to the God of Israel and faith in the God of Israel as they see their own God's Faces rubbed in the mud of failure as they see the world that they had such perfect faith in crumble and It says in the next couple of parses that it wasn't just the people of Israel that left Egypt It says there was a mixed multitude with them. There was a whole bunch of people from other nations There was a whole ton of Egyptians who said we're out of here There is a living God and he is with the people of Israel and we are going where he goes That is how that division of Pharaoh's house ended. And that is, uh, that is the effect that Messiah and the power of his spirit in the midst of his people is wreaking on the kingdom of the enemy today in this world also. And I'm just, we're just gonna cheer him on in that regard. Okay. Let's go back to the Parsa, and let's look at the Parsa here. Uh, it's a which means, and I appeared. Starts in Exodus chapter 6 verse 2, and goes to 935. I'm not going to touch on some of these things in great detail because every year God calls us to take a whole week called Passover and Unleavened Bread to study the Exodus account, to retell it, to really live it out in vivid detail, even over a Passover meal. And I think there was a reason for that. It's not just so we can be solid grounded in our historical past. It's so we can be ready for the future. There are some... Vivid prophetic elements and themes in the Exodus story that are going to play out in the future before Messiah's return. I'll read you an interesting verse in that regard. It's in the book of Jeremiah chapter 16 verse 14. Jeremiah 16 verse 14 it says, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh. And it says, Behold, in Hebrew, it means, Look, watch this. It's a word to grab your attention. Something's about to happen. When it will no longer be said, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is a reference to the historical exodus. But rather, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north. And from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. And then he goes on to describe several other end-of-days dynamics. People waking up in the nations and realizing that their religious customs are trash, that they've inherited a bunch of lies, that they need to drop those things and take hold of the truth. And uh, it's amazing. He goes on in the end of this chapter in verse 21 to say, Therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. And that's how this parsha begins. So we know that this is connected. Jeremiah chapter 16 is connected to the Exodus account. And he says that he's going to do something so much greater than the historical Exodus from Egypt when he brings his people back from the northern hemisphere and from all the countries where he banished them to the land of Israel, where they will live forever when he restores them to it. That people aren't even going to be talking so much about the historical Exodus. They're going to be talking about what he's doing right now. And this has not happened yet. It has been amazing so far how the the, uh, the, the Zionist m- movement, really, in the last century has resulted in uh, a great influx of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Over six million. That's about a third of world Jewry. That's pretty good, but it's not enough. There's going to be more. And the future influx of the people of Israel to the land of Israel may not only involve the Jewish sector of the people of Israel. Because scripture says very clearly that if you believe in Yeshua Messiah, you are a member of the commonwealth of Israel. You are a son of Abraham. The promises, the ancient covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, which includes the land of Israel, are for you too. So there may be more than just the Jewish people going home to Israel at some point. Something to keep in mind. There are some phenomenal parallels here. I'm just going to touch on them briefly here. We're going to get a a flash overview In uh, chapter 7, verses 14 to 25 of Exodus, we have the beginning of the showdown between Pharaoh, i.e. the anti-Messiah, the Antichrist of his generation, and God's two witnesses, who in this case were Moses and Aaron. And they had the power to turn the waters to blood. Does that phrase come up anywhere else in the Bible? That's correct. Revelation chapter 11 talks about two witnesses. There's a theory that this might be uh, like the two peoples of God, Jewish and Christian believers, Ephraim and Judah, or whatever. Uh, when you read it, Revelation 11, just as a surface reading and on a literal level, that's impossible. I think this is talking about two literal individuals who are going to uh, rise to play a great role in the kingdom. And personally, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. I want to be around to see those guys do their job. It's going to be it's going to be even more world shaking than Moses and Aaron and the accomplishment of their mission. In chapter eight, verses twenty-eight, 8, verse twenty-three, and verse twenty-two, also, I'll read it to you. It says, Yahweh's is talking. On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people." and your people, tomorrow, this sign will occur. If this happened in the past, then it will happen in the future. Yahweh says, I will put a division between my people, my covenant people, and your people, Pharaoh, who worship a pantheon of gods and don't believe in me. That's reassuring. (laughs) Chapter 9, verse 4, basically says the same thing. Uh, But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. Again, he makes a distinction as regards to national catastrophe that befalls the country in judgment. God says, I'm going to preserve your property. I'm going to protect your possessions. And I'm sure there was an awesome witness to the people of Egypt too, that the people of Israel had a real God. And again in chapter 9, verse 26. He says, "Oh, it says only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail." Supernatural. So that is a that is a, an element that I believe is going to also play out in the future. Uh, Did anybody notice the question of the week in our weekly e-newsletter? Yes. Um, yeah, about three days in the morning. So yeah. was just three days. That's right. Moses said, we want to go a journey of three days into the wilderness. Did the people of Israel really intend to only go three days into the wilderness and then come back and work the rest of their lives for Pharaoh? No, of course not. Why did he say that? Um, there, there was a fascinating conversation on our Facebook fan page about this this last week. I loved reading some of the suggestions people had and some of their insights. But uh, nobody guessed the one that I had in mind. And maybe it's just because it's too simple. Three in Scripture is uh, often symbolic of the resurrection, of resurrection power, of new life. And why did this number come up in conjunction with the people of Israel? Exiting Egypt, i.e., the world system that was under the anti-Messiah's rule, and going into the wilderness to meet the living God. Maybe it's a picture of the future. Maybe it's saying that it is only the resurrection power of Messiah active in our lives that will take us out of the coming new world order and will take us through the great tribulation to the safety of his kingdom. It's only the resurrection power of Messiah that's going to do that. That's what I get out of that. Chapter 9, verse 16 of Exodus tells us why the coming beast system described in the book of Revelation and the anti-Messiah will be empowered and allowed to rule the earth. Let's read that too. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16 by the way, I don't have all the details in Revelation figured out. I kind of get scared sometimes when people try and figure it out because you get all kinds of answers, and sometimes they're, like, a little freaky. So I don't want to scare you guys when we, like, touch on Revelation. I'm just talking Revelation on a really basic level, right? It's like there's going to be some stuff that happens. There are going to be some guys that do some, some pretty bad stuff, and Messiah is going to come at the end, and he's going to rescue his people. Um... So, you know, I like to try and kind of get in the groove of starting to think about this stuff anyway, though. In uh, chapter 9, verse 16, this is Yahweh talking to Pharaoh personally, and he says, Indeed, for this reason, Pharaoh, I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power, and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So in the future... If there's a time when the beast system or the anti-Messiah seems to have free reign and evil is running rampant and justice seems to have been cast by the roadside, just remember that Yahweh stood Pharaoh up for a reason. It was so ultimately his name could be proclaimed in all the world. So he could become famous. So people could hear the gospel of his salvation. Maybe it'll happen again. I'm going to list a couple of the uh, parallels between the plagues in Exodus and the plagues in Revelation. They're startling the similarities. Uh, water turning to blood and becoming non-potable. Frogs and unclean spirits like frogs. Epidemics of boils and malignant sores. Hail and fire burning and scorching all the crops and grass and decimating a large percentage of trees and natural resources. Locust causing national famine and demonic locusts freely tormenting people, the earth being obscured from the sun and plunged into darkness. This is interesting that all of the, all of this imagery is very interconnected, and it's all from Exodus and revelation. It tells us, like we've been talking about that, he does declare the end from the beginning it's very connected. Um, the opening of this parsha. Uh, has Yahweh giving some promises to the people of Israel. He says, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you to the land. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched hand. And he he gives seven specific promises there. And the first four of those I will statements, those betrothal promises we could say, are with the four cups of the Passover Seder. Are named after and what they're all about, and we're not going to get into those details today. But we will when we're getting closer to Passover. We're going to do a Passover seder, and we'll revisit the story, and uh, we'll recount it, and we'll learn about each of these, excuse me, uh, s- uh, special cups. Okay, I'm going to take you through 11 Hebrew terms and idioms from this parsha that are really going to bring it to life. This is going to be like your freebie Hebrew lesson, and you're going to get some cool insights in the process. I love, I love just looking at the original Hebrew terms and idioms and then seeing how they apply. Chapter 6, verse 3, Yahweh talks about His name. And He says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know His name, which has led some people to think, oh, they didn't know the name Yahweh. But when we read the text, we discover very fast that, yes, they did know that name. And they addressed Him by that name in prayer. We talked about how Abraham called God Adonai Yahweh. My Master Yahweh in prayer. What does this mean? It tells us that there's more to God than just His name and the pronunciation of His name. And I think this is especially relevant for anybody from the loosely called sacred name movement to you know, people who cherish the use of God's name in scripture reading and in prayer. And I, I, I too cherish the use of God's name in scripture reading and in prayer. There's more to His name than just saying it or just pronouncing it, trying to pronounce it right. That's not the point. The point of His name is it's who He is and is what He does. So if we are going to use God's name, I I appreciate that, and I believe there's a place for that, but let's make sure that we do it in a way that reflects who He is in our lives. If we talk about using God's name, let's make sure that we do that in a way that reflects who He is. Sometimes there are debates about how to pronounce God's name that where people, they stop reflecting His character in the process of trying to figure this out and sometimes debating it. And I bothers me. Uh, We haven't experienced that, and I'm thankful for it. I don't think we're going to. That's a note for the broader movement. In chapter 6, verse 4, the New American Standard Version says, uh, has Yahweh saying that He will establish His covenant, but the Hebrew literally says, uh, it says, He says, I will raise my covenant. That's the Hebrew word for establishing. So whenever you read about Him, establishing His covenant, He uses the word for the resurrection. It's just one of those things where you have this foreglimpse throughout the Torah of the resurrection. And sure enough, the Father came through for His Son. He fulfilled His covenant when He raised Messiah from the dead. That's when He made good on things more than at any other time. <laughs> Also in chapter 6, verse 5, he says that he will remember his covenant. And this is yet another example of how remembering, in the Hebraic context, means acting on behalf of. So when we were praying today, enlisting these people to the Almighty in intercession, we were remembering them before him. We were causing their names to be remembered, not because he forgot about them, but because this is a spiritual law, that when we do this, he acts on our behalf. He acts on behalf of our prayers and for these people. That's the, uh, original thought behind that. Uh, chapter 6, verse 13, it says that Moses and Aaron were charged with a mission. And the Hebrew root there for charge is tzav. Can we all say tzav? tzav. That's the root for the Hebrew word for commandment, mitzvah. Can we all say mitzvah? Tzav. What we learn from this is God's commandments aren't just a set of rules. They're not just a bunch of laws. The heart of God's commandments is mission. When we understand God's commandments and we implement them in our lives is when we begin to understand our personal mission from Him and when we begin to live it out. And there's a lot of questions today. Well, I know that God has a plan for my life, especially if you're young. Well, God has a plan for my life. I, I have some big choices to make about career, about what school I go to, about where I'm going to live, etc. The first thing we want to do is focus on Reading his word from start to finish, and doing everything we can to implement every commandment we can into our lives. That is the start of finding our mission. And from there, things will unfold. All the details will fall into place. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 26 and 7, verse 4, talks about... uh, New American Standard talks about the hosts of Israel being brought out of Egypt. The Hebrew word there is armies. God's people were more than just a bunch of people. They were more than just a ragtag band. They were an army. And it's true today, too, that you are part of his army. We in this room are a messiah's army. (laughs) And uh, that's another theme that runs through the scriptures. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says that Aaron was Moses' prophet. This gives us an understanding of prophet. I'm not sure if we're aware of this, but you are called to be a prophet for God. Often, especially in some circles, the word prophet kind of has these connotations of like a big show and lots of glitz and glamour and uh, all kinds of supernatural stuff. And you know, sometimes maybe that is involved. But the original Hebrew word for prophet just means a spokesman, a spokesperson. Aaron was Moses' spokesman. And in that regard, you are invited by God to be a spokesperson for him. Therefore, the gift of prophecy, the very root of it, is the ability to speak His Word clearly, boldly, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that kind of gift of prophecy is for every single one of us in in this room. Which is also why Paul said, you should want to prophesy. Uh, Of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you should really be asking God for the gift of prophecy. Why? because it's just the ability to speak His Word clearly and boldly to the people in our lives. That's the root of it. <laughs> Here, here's one of those, these uh, shock quotes from Paul that you can write on a note and stick on your fridge with an exclamation mark. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5. I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Paul said, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more, that you would prophesy. I think sometimes, especially if we're from charismatic circles, we forget the last half of this. I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, that you would be empowered to speak the word of God boldly and clearly. <laughs> um, another massive theme about who our God is in this and in the last parsha is he is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God of the Hebrews. And he's called this in chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 16, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 13, and chapter 5, verse 3. Don't look them all up, of course. I'm just giving you those references so we realize this was the core of who he was, and it continues to be the core of who he is. Because God don't change. He's historically identified himself with a specific ethnic group, the Hebrews, and a specific language, Hebrew, He was and is the God of the Hebrews. And he may clarify his identity in that regard again in the future. Because there's some confusion about who God is in the world today. Just like there was in Egypt. Chapter 9, verse 5. This is cool. I I, I never noticed this until this last year. In chapter 9, verse 5, the New American Standard reads, Yahweh set a definite time, saying, tomorrow Yahweh will do this thing in the land. Do you know what the Hebrew there for definite time is? It's Moed, which in other places is translated as appointed time. King James renders that word as feasts, as in Leviticus 23. These are the feasts of the Lord. These are the definite times of the Lord. Unfortunately, often in the church world today, we don't even know about the biblical calendar. We're really out of the loop. Like, we've really gotten out of sync with the creator of the universe. And instead of realizing that God has definite times, Moadim, we sometimes kind of think the opposite. We think, well, anything goes, you know, eh, any day is fine, you know, just whatever you want, whatever you feel like. Kind of, we kind of, I think we've kind of lost touch with that aspect of God. That God is a God of specific times. That He sets Moadim with His people. And that we need to be awake, we need to be alert. We need to be in sync with him really consciously and and not be sloppy in that area of our, our faith lives. So, and, and I, I really, I'm really encouraged because this is an area where, where the Bride of Messiah is awakening world, worldwide. We're beginning to understand the biblical calendar. We're connecting with the biblical festivals and realizing their beauty and their vividness and their prophetic elements of them and uh, the fact that they are for us today. How they all point to Messiah. So I, I'm just really encouraged by that. And it's an area that we're going to continue to grow in. Uh, we as a congregation are a beachhead in Prince Albert in that regard. That's one of the things that we are flying as a banner. That God is a God of appointed times. He always has been. He always will be. It's the way he works with his people. And uh, that's something that we're just going to continue learning about. The last one is chapter 9, verse 33. Cool Hebrew idiom for prayer. Moses goes outside the city because, you know, he's going to pray that the plague will stop. And it doesn't actually say he prays. It says that he does this. It says he stretches out his hands. And what we learn from that is, that's a Hebrew idiom for prayer. When Hebrews think about prayer, they think about stretching out their hands to God. When you say, yeah, I went and I stretched out my hands to God, that's the Hebrew way of saying, I went and I prayed to God. For me personally, I appreciate that. Because sometimes, sometimes I can be more verbal in my relationship with the Almighty, but sometimes I like to be more kinesthetic in my, my expression to Him. So for me personally, when I can get into worship and dance, when I can get on my knees before the King of the Universe, when I can lift my hands to my Father, things like that really help me break out and express my heart to Him. And there is a great precedent for that in the early books of Scripture. It's a foundation, and it's something that we continue to do today. So let's, let's finish with that. Well, contextually, I don't know if there's a specifically Hebraic definition, but contextually the Pharisees were attributing works of the Holy Spirit that were clearly redemptive acts of God. They were clearly Him healing people, bringing people back to life from the dead, you know, kicking out demons. And they said, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's the devil. I, I actually, I like the, the, the message paraphrase kind of loosely renders that as you're cutting off the branch that you're standing on. You don't have, like, a limb left to stand on. In other words, like, if you say that the Holy Spirit is the devil, you are pretty far gone. I, I, I don't know. I don't have I don't have a definitive theological answer for you on that, but that's just a really basic understanding. Why don't we continue that discussion? What's that? Okay, but here's something else. If someone is scared that maybe they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and committed the unpardonable sin, then they haven't. Because if you did, you wouldn't be concerned about that. You'll be so far gone you won't care so if anyone's ever wrestled with that if you're ever concerned that maybe you've done that the very fact that you're concerned about it means that you haven't Shalom. i'm izzy avraham and thank you for joining me for this talk i delivered these messages live during the years i was leading a congregation they're now hosted by my hebrew school holy language institute at holylanguage.com If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.